0: and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support.
1: Much love, thank you.
0: Hello and welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I mean, the world is officially a shit show. I mean, you might be listening to me like, duh, thanks, Captain Obvious. And I'm like, yep, but it's got to be stated. It's hard to make sense of what the hell is going on. It's hard to know which way is up. It's hard to know who's telling the truth, who's not. It's just a challenging time, and it causes a lot of anxiety. So if you're experiencing anxiety right now, I'd say, I guess you're paying attention. And we often want to just move away from anxiety, of course, right? We want to claim certainty. And so that causes us to really cling to certain beliefs, which really abolishes any opportunity for discourse. And of course, we see this in so many different ways in any conversation about what's currently occurring in the world. You know, we have so many inconsistencies. And I think that's what's challenging is when you question inconsistencies, you're told basically to shut the fuck up. But like in other ways like don't be hesitant are you an anti-vaxxer are you anti this are you a republican are you a democrat are you this i'm canadian but we still get assigned these things you know no matter what and we all have ways of dividing no matter where you live in the world and our fear doesn't allow us to hear all the information so of course there are viable arguments on every side but our fear doesn't allow us to be open and i would argue and this is supported by a lot of research that, first off, the research shows that the news has been overwhelmingly negative about COVID. The news is always negative, generally, right? Because if it bleeds, it leads, is the thought. And we live in an attention economy. And so, of course, they try to hide our jack or amygdala so that we stay on our devices on the news and we consume, consume, consume. And because we don't have social lives generally, depending where you live in the world right now. Um, We're out and about. We're not out and about. We're watching TV. We're scrolling. And so because of that overwhelming negative information, I think it's pretty safe to make the assumption that any dialogue that opposes that main narrative is immediately shut down. And there are words used to assign to people like that, like anti-vax, anti-this, conspiracy theorist. And the hard part I have about that is one, like the other day I did a video on my stories where I just said, Hey, like this conversation about vaccine passports is important. It's an important conversation to have. And, you know, I think it we head down a very slippery slope when we we're trading medical compliance with freedom. And a lot of people say, well, they've always existed to travel to certain countries. And it's like not to go to a store, not to go to a restaurant, not so they haven't always existed in most countries. Um, And so when I put that story up, I received a message uh, from a friend of mine that said, are you an anti-vaxxer now? And I'm like, gosh, nothing I said in the story had anything to do with that. But that's what we do is we put people in a box so that we don't have to hear discourse, so that we don't have to be uncomfortable so that we can elicit shame in them, so they can shut down the conversation and not do any more research or any more speaking. And look at, we, people got censored for posting about vaccine passports nine months ago, a year ago, saying it was all going there. Isn't that kind of crazy to you that, one, it was censored, and now it's here today? And almost like the narrative's being controlled. That's what happens is it causes a lot of anxiety within us because You can't deny that that happened, right? So then your body's like, well, wait, they're censoring information that that's now true. It's almost like they're controlling information. Like that's where the body would just naturally go. The mind would naturally go there. And then we shame people for being vaccine hesitant. I mean, if we weren't talking about vaccines and we were just talking about anything, any medical intervention, and I said to you, hey, I'm I'm hesitant about taking this drug that doesn't have long-term data. We'd all go, that's pretty normal. That's a pretty normal feeling to have. So when we say, don't be hesitant, what are you an anti-vaxxer? We're we're trying to shut them down and essentially what we're doing is we're gaslighting them and gaslighting is denying someone their experience. And so if you feel hesitant or you feel scared or you are uncertain, that's normal. I, I don't know how anyone could say that's not normal. Because if it wasn't about vaccines, it'd be normal. But because it's about that subject, there's something greater going on in that any questioning of it, we've assigned an opportunity to just label someone. And and of course, shame shuts people down, and then they're not going to share. And actually, it creates inflammation, and it has a immune effect as well, which is not positive. And we start to not trust our own feelings, our own thoughts are like, oh, my gosh, I, I am hesitant and I can't believe I, I'm not supposed to be. You can get ashamed. You can get shamed for doing this. And so we are threatened with the possibility of not belonging. And, you know, this is a huge conversation. I saw a physician post on their stories, pregnant and getting the vaccine, zero hesitancy. And I was like, I don't I don't understand how that's why you would brag about that. Because that doesn't say to me, like, oh, you're a doctor, so you not having hesitancy means there's data there. Nope, data's still not there. So if the data's still not there, and now if I'm someone who's not a physician, and I'm like, but I'm hesitant, well, they're not, so I shouldn't be. Again, we gaslight ourselves. So this happens, and gaslighting happens in lots of emotional experiences. Don't be sad. Don't be upset. You're not supposed to be. That didn't happen, and we question our own realities. So if you have anxiety because your reality has been denied, that makes sense. Breathe into your reality. Your reality is real. Step into it. Own it. Because, you know, we can't help but be curious about what's going on. You walk in a restaurant, you wear a mask, you sit at the table, you take it off. I'm sorry. That doesn't make sense. And we all know it doesn't make sense. So let's just tell the truth. It doesn't make sense. And we could say public health people are doing the best they can. Sure. We're a year into this pandemic, more than that now. And we're still doing the thames, same things we started with, which were officially a test back then, because we didn't know. All the pandemic plans that countries had were thrown out the fucking window. And we went with, oh, let's all do this lockdown thing, except for some countries. And now the argument is being made that they're actually doing better than the ones that locked down. And there's now 40 plus studies looking at lockdowns and showing no to minimal benefit and lots of potential harm. And so I'm not a public health official, but I would, my understanding of public health would be that you would take in new information and you would make different decisions with new information. The same conversation about masks, no matter where you sit on it, there's lots of arguments for both sides. And there's lots of data to show that ones that states and countries that don't have mandates are actually performing better. Again, not saying one's right or the other, but there's a lot of conflicting information. And I'm from Canada, and Canada is bananas with how they're handling this. And that could be with regards to whatever your opinion is on the vaccine rollout, but also just this idea that we're going to attempt zero COVID as a strategy, but we're not an island. And so we kind of stay kind of open and kind of stay kind of closed. And it just, it's not working. And we should be taking in new information. We're looking at other states and other places where cases are not skyrocketing and hospitalizations are not skyrocketing and deaths are not skyrocketing. And, you know, it it just leads us to kind of wonder why is there not a public discourse on this conversation? When you dive deeper into the medical literature and the medical conversation of the world of healthcare practitioners, there is quite a dialogue going on. And, you know, I saw a YouTube video where there was a conversation with the governor of Florida with a famous Harvard epidemiologist named Martin Kulldorff, I think is how you say his last name. And then there was a couple other physicians from Stanford on there. And, And regardless of your political opinion about the governor of Florida, the fact that this was a dialogue that was based on science, and these are highly, these are not slouches, these are Harvard and Stanford. I mean, come on. These are the people that we say listen to the science, follow the science. And then we're like, wait, not those ones though. And so YouTube decided to censor that, saying that it was misinformation. And it's like, but wait, aren't those physicians, especially Dr. Gulldorff, I know is highly, highly cited. It's like, isn't misinformation often compared to the information physicians like them provide? I mean, you couldn't make this up. And that likely will cause you, as it does me, some internal conflict of like, what is happening here? This doesn't make sense. And so my body has been saying this from the start, that there's just something up, and I don't know what it is. And you got to follow the money, of course. You know, it's, I used to be a pharmaceutical rep. Like, I, I don't understand how if it was a person who lied and misrepresented data and made zillions of dollars, and then we found out, and They got charged, and they paid a fine. We would never let them work in that area again. But with large corporations, they just do that. They lie. They misuse information. They misrepresent it. They sometimes hold it back, and they pay a billion-dollar fine, and then they're okay to do the exact same stuff again, and this time we trust them without restoration, without any liability, like there's not liability for vaccine use. So one, at least in the countries that I'm aware of, it might be different where you're from. So we can't negate that information that there's a large amount of money that there's a large amount of money that gets invested into the media. And so the information we get from the media is bias. Of course it's bias. And to deny that is, I don't know how you can. And so I think for me, at least, what's become clear is that It's hard to trust anything. And the fact that censoring is occurring really causes me to be afraid because censoring of highly trained physicians, we're getting to a bit of a weird point because there's something about the discussion that someone or some people or a group or the governments don't want us to have or hear. And I just go, why? Because I don't know why. I just know that it's happening. And so I'm going to continue to bravely turn towards this conversation because I can't look back upon my life and say I didn't face it with curiosity and open dialogue. I didn't let the fear of negative opinion or someone being triggered stop me from exploring what the truth might be. And so I encourage you, no matter what side you sit on any of the arguments or conflicts or whatever it is that at least you just open yourself up to the possibility of new information that might conflict with something you've heard before. The recognition that usually when a belief is threatened, especially beliefs about this subject matter, it's usually associated with the fear of death or the fear of people we love dying, and that's a very real fear. And can we breathe deeply into the space where that the amygdala needs? Can we take a bunch of deep nasal breaths? <sighs> So that we can maybe explore the possibility that there's more to this. And so the last time I explored this was with a physician and it was one of your favorite podcast episodes. It resonated so much with you. It found a place in your heart. It spoke to the multitudes and the complexity of the human experience, the earth and all of it intermingled. I am so excited to have Mr. Zach Bush, MD, back on the podcast. And for those of you that don't know, Dr. Zach is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He's an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. Dr. Zack founded Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmer's Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. His passion for education reaches across many disciplines, including topics such as the role of soil and water ecosystems in human genomics, immunity, and gut brain health. His education has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy, and his ongoing efforts are providing a path for consumers, farmers, and mega industries to work together for a healthy future for people and planet. Actually, before we get started, hold on. I just want to preface this episode with two things. One is you might hear things that you don't like that make you upset, and I would invite the inquiry into just because it makes us upset doesn't make it not true. And so are we uncomfortable with truths that destabilize us? Of course we are. But so often we get angry at it and want to deny it and make make it go away instead of actually turning towards it and asking how that might change, how we need to show up, and all the things. And the second thing is just to remind you how magical of a being you are. Just like how magical your body is, your mind, that you can change it, that you can shift it, that you can adjust, that your body can heal, that it's this magical creation. And I think we should all just remember that, how miraculous this experience of being on this planet is and that we even get to have these conversations and hear them and think about them and and feel about them. And so let's do this. Welcome, Dr. Zach. Well, Dr. Zach, it is uh absolute pleasure to have you back on the podcast thank you for making the time mark pleasure to be back with you and the whole audience here oh your last episode and if you're listening and you're like what last episode it was i think it's the most popular episode i've had in recent times so you clearly spoke to a part of people that they really needed to hear that was different than the sort of fear-mongering narrative that we continue to hear from the media
1: yeah, I think that, that the human spirit is in need of a, a new platform to rest on <laughs> and that is fear-free and, and guilt-free ultimately as well. And just uh, a, a spirit of hope is a good one for us to, to engender in one another as we move forward here.
0: Yeah, because it seems like there is sort of an absence of that. I was reading a study recently that the bias of American media, especially, but this is true, of media worldwide, was if there was any data or information shared about the COVID situation, the coronavirus there, it was negative. So even if there was positive news, it was not delivered or not delivered in a positive note. And I just think of like how much that might affect the immune system itself.
1: Yeah. It's huge. Actually. We, we have long known that the, amount of cortisol, for example, a stress hormone produced by the adrenal glands when produced in a non-physiologic fashion, meaning that it's not kind of your normal uh, anabolic, you know, building constructive input that the adrenals do every day, but shifts to this kind of fight or flight reactive biology, there's an immediate shift in your immune system. and, And no longer are you concerned about you know, whether or not you get a virus or whether or not you have cancer in 10 years, your, your whole reality of the body shifts to a very short-sighted, you know, myopic look at what do I need to do today. And so you, when you move from a longevity kind of vitality mindset of the physiology to one of damage control and short-term reactivities to make sure that the lion doesn't bite your head off today, you make much different decisions at the biologic level. You push resources to very finite, short-term projects rather than looking at the bigger picture of like, boy, I should really be prepared to you know replace my pulmonary respiratory access every you know two to three weeks because there's res- you're not thinking about that. And so all of your resources instead move into something reactive, and so we have this huge, huge dampening effect uh, when it comes to fear and it it has a trickle-down effect. And so when your cortisol axis gets kind of inverted on its head you start spiking cortisol at 5 p.m., 7 p.m., 9 p.m. at night when you're watching the evening news because there's 100,000 new deaths being reported or whatever it is, and you start to get your body into that fight or flight state before going into sleep, you never get stage four sleep. You never get that restorative deep sleep that goes and builds your immune system. And so there's an immediate impact of fear on the immune system and in your innate capacity for vitality. And then there's these trickle down effects through poor sleep quality, poor sex drive, and it starts to stack up from an endocrine standpoint to this real crisis of, of vitality.
0: Well, there seems to be ha- there seems to have been a real absence of any sort of uh, hey, build your immune system, take vitamin D, get some exercise. Instead, it's been be afraid, hide inside, uh, not to mention the psychological impacts of that, wear a mask, hide yourself. Like everything is not about promoting health generative behaviors. And, you know, that uh, I'm sure as as a physician observing that, like I'm curious, like I've heard from a number of physicians that concern, but I've also seen censorship of these kinds of conversations, of conversations that are about health promoting behaviors.
1: It's an astounding decision that, you know, the common narrative decided to take the tack they did, you know, like to create this vision this fearful vision that we're in, in the first global pandemic since nineteen seventeen. It's gonna be like the Spanish flu all over again and uh if mortality meet thirty times worse than flu. Those were the first, you know, that's the first eight weeks. That's March, April last year, you know. Mm-hmm. And so y- you take that narrative and then anybody who has a positive note of hey, by the way, nobody over the age of 80 or under the age of 80 died in northern Italy like you know it's only extremely yeah. elderly people with lots of comorbidities that are dying in northern Italy if we had just taken that tack, which was being said, but it wasn't allowed to integrate into the the common narrative you know so physicians were saying it scientists were saying it we were all recognizing that wow, this does not seem to be. A typical pandemic, which typically hits children in Africa, like children in Africa, we lose, you know, logarithmically more, you know, people to respiratory disease in Africa every year than anywhere else in the world, and most of it's through pneumonia, which is, you know, might start as a virus but is microbial, uh, bacterial in, in its in its, you know, mortality, and that's because of malnutrition. But here we were watching this thing sweep across the globe and the children in Africa weren't the, that that wasn't the low hanging fruit for, for this syndrome. We were seeing it really consistently hitting elderly. And if younger than 80, it was somebody with really rapid aging morbidities, right? And so the, we can call things diabetes, we can call them heart disease, we can call them chronic kidney disease, but really those are all just nuances of rapid aging. And so the biology is 80 years old, whether it's a 60-year-old with diabetes and end-stage diabetes or not. So whether it's a young person or old person chronologically, what we saw over and over again with with this recent pandemic is it was always affecting people who were biologically old or biologically failing in, in the repair process that's innate to youth or vitality. And so that would tell you immediately about a lot of things that you can proactively do for a population to, to make a population younger. We know a lot of how to do that. We don't talk about it much in, in Western medicine because we're so busy doing damage control for chronic mm-hmm. yeah. disease man- management, but they're really cool things that we can do for anybody of any age. You know, the, one of the hormones that's most vital to your innate immune system is vitamin D. And so vitamin D is this super unique, uh, uh, steroid hormone. It's not actually a vitamin. It was, it was misnamed a vitamin back in the day when we didn't really understand what these molecules were. It's not actually a vitamin at all. Vitamins and minerals come from our nutritional environment, blah, blah, blah. Vitamin D is a steroid hormone made by your skin when it's hit by vitamin D uh, or sorry, when it's hit by sunshine. So sunshine hits the skin skin produces vitamin D. The vitamin D interacts on 2000 different genes, which is a full 10% of the human genome. And so it hits 2000 different gene pathways to modify your immune response. And interestingly, your anabolic muscle build, uh, your lean muscle mass, which then determines your insulin resistance level, all of these things. And so there's this beautiful downstream effect of vitamin D. So- knowing that we can euthify the biology even to people who are postmenopausal or you know in that second phase of life where testosterone estrogen and all these are starting to decline we can do the same anabolic work with vitamin D that testosterone would typically do that estradiol would typically do we can do a lot of that work a lot of that pro immunity pro pro health kind of uh, strengthening lower insulin levels better kidney function with vitamin D And so if we had immediately said, we need to get the whole population outside, so this is, you know, February, March last year, which is at our lowest vitamin D points as a population in the Northern Hemisphere, we should have said, all right, everybody jump on 10,000 units a day of vitamin D. And then as soon as April 1 hits, which is the end of solar winter in the Northern Hemisphere, we need everybody outside midday between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. for at least 20 to 30 minutes with a lot of skin exposed. Instead, we said, everybody go inside, don't come out because something's going to kill you. And so we literally did the opposite thing when it comes to public health. At the same time, this is, you know, Janu- January, we get the first ripples of, oh, geez, there's a new new coronavirus coming out of China that might have high mortality. Maybe it has some scary potential. We should have immediately, as of January, stopped all flu flu vaccines because we had already established that. Influenza vaccines, when given, increase your risk of coronavirus mortality in, in the following year. So we should have immediately cessated all flu vaccines. We should have said, look, flu is the here, but it doesn't look nearly as deadly as coronavirus. We're going to you know, forgo flu viruses, uh, vaccines for the next three years until this coronavirus is gone. Then we'll go back and see if it makes relevance idea to, to put flu vaccines back in play, depending on what the ecosystem looks like at that point. But you know studies in 2006, 2012, 2017, U.S. studies. You know the 2017 was done in the U.S. military, showing again and again that flu vaccine increases coronavirus you know, infection and death the following year. So load everybody on vitamin D. Stop flu vaccines. That should have been by you know February 20th last year before any lockdowns. Everything else we should have already intervened there.
0: Based on the time of year and what's going on in the world, I am all about making sure that my immune system is operating at its best. I want to make sure that it is in tip-top shape so that whatever it might meet, it is able to fight off. And so one of the ways I do that is I use Organifi Immunity. It's 100% organic. It's got 500% of your recommended daily dose of vitamin C. And that vitamin C is sourced from organic cherries. It contains the immune-boosting power of ginger, turmeric, and also zinc. It is gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, vegan, all of those things, and as I said, 100% organic. And it also has a vegan source of D3 from lichen moss, and that provides 1,000 international units of vitamin C, which is 188% of our daily recommended dose. Vitamin D is so important to modulate innate and adaptive immunity. So if you're interested in giving your immune system a boost and a little bit of extra um in order to fight off what might come towards you this season, check out Organify.com slash create the love. You get 20% off anything you order from there. They have such incredible products. I love them as a brand. I love them as a culture. I love them as a company. Go check them out now.
1: Then we should have said, what are the other things that we can do to the population to shift this? And and immediately the the big ones are sleep hygiene. And so we should have said, all right, we're going to actually stop broadcasting. We're going to have Netflix turn off all content at 10 p.m. because we got to have this population if we're going to prevent massive death in our country, we need everybody asleep by 10 p.m. We could have done that. That's actually yeah. super easy. We could have easily said we're going to shift content and and we're going to do this and and there. Next thing we're going to do is we're going to make sure all events are outside and so Uh, all restaurants are not going to close down. They're going to put everybody outside and they're going to move to a a regenerative mandate where they need to put on their menu, which are the, which are the food items that are going to deliver the highest levels of vitamin C and critical nutrients for the innate immune system. And we're going to rank each menu as to when you're outside getting your vitamin D eating at the restaurant with your friends and relatives, what are the foods that are going to most support your innate immune system? Like that could have been a really interesting approach. And then we would have left the pandemic with a whole different way to educate people about food rather than saying there's 300 calories in your Starbucks. We could say there's zero antioxidants <laughs> in your Starbucks. But if you go over here and you drink green tea latte with, you know, with almond milk or coconut milk or whatever it is, then you're getting some antioxidant in there. You got some fat that's going to help out. You're getting this many you know, you know uh, innate immune system building blocks over here on your green tea, you know? So there would have been so many ways we could have pivoted. And interestingly, some countries decided to do that. And so uh, we saw, you know, Sweden kind of took the, we're not gonna do anything mode. We're just gonna keep everybody doing the smart thing. If you're sick, keep doing what you're doing, but do it at home, you know, whatever it is. But they took the no fear approach and they had some great outcomes. But what was much more interesting to me is what some provinces in northern India did. Um, One state there in northern India, population of 30 million people, as soon as they saw saw this thing hit northern Italy and all that at the beginning of the pandemic, they said, all right, uh, we we need immediately to move on this. So there's a homeopathic regimen that's very specific to viral syndromes. And so they dispersed door to door. Province of 30 million people went door to door throughout the communities, with the public health message of we are now distributing this homeopathy free, and we recommend, you know, vitamin D and exercise every day outdoors. They had one sixtieth of the death rate from this. This is a country, this is a wow. state that has no hospitals, no ICUs, this impoverished personnel, one sixtieth of the mortality of New York City, blah, blah, blah. And so That proactive stance of, hey, don't worry, we've got this, we've got a plan and our plan is to make you healthier. And here's how we're going to do and we're going to provide it for free for you because we don't have the hospital infrastructure to help you on the back end of this thing. We need to keep you healthy. And so they were incentivized because of the lack of infrastructure to do the right thing. The second time around, you know, coronavirus now kind of taking its toll. Even after all things are done, and now, now the pandemic's going away everywhere, right? The pandemic's going away, and and it had to go away because every single coronavirus pandemic that we've had—SARS, MERS, so, you know, sars covid two—these all have a two-year lifespan, and so we probably talked about it last time, but the government was rushing to get this this thing out, this vaccine program out, because if they hadn't gotten out in January, the thing would have obviously gone away before the vaccine. So they need to give the appearance that this vaccine is going to play some role in making this thing go away. I I did. I talked about this last year in March, April, May, like I was every podcast I was on, I kept saying, do not be fooled by this. You know, so I I had no idea what they were going to come up with. All I knew is they had to come up with it fast and they were going to have to deploy it before you know, March of 2021, because things are going to be going away. The pandemic will be over. And, and the reason why they go away every time is because the entire population of biology, and I'm not even talking humans, I'm talking about all the mammals, but but further than that, the bacteria themselves that do a lot of the transfer of genetic information from the virome to, you know, uh, multicellular organisms, the bacteriophage and the viruses are going to get bored with this new information and they're going to come onto to a new, new status of swapping this new coronavirus, you know whatever it is, and it's going to st- become stable in the genomic code of the planet. Plants, animals, bacteria, fungi, they all come to a balanced state with the new genetic information within that two-year period. It always has to happen. That, it's been going on for billions of years since then. The viruses literally date back three and a half billion years. We showed up 200,000 years ago. It's not humans that cause viruses. It's not humans that fly on an airplane to move a virus. Viruses have been moving around the planet since the beginning of life on Earth. And that's how life has developed. We, the viruses are literally the engaged language of biology. It's not the abstract language that I'm using right now to try to represent a reality with my words. It is the reality. Yeah. The gnomic language of the virum is the reality of life on Earth. And so now in 2020, we decide there's this huge pandemic and we're going to put ourselves in opposition to the virus as, as a whole. That is insanity. That's, that's literally saying, you know, if you had somebody run for politics right now and, and their, their platform they were running on is we are going to fire every governmental official here and we're going to give no money back to, to uh, Americans and we're only going to take your money. That's that's the new platform. Mm. Nobody would vote for that. And yet here we are on the platform of life. And as a species, we're saying, here's our new platform. We're going to kill all life around us. We're going to put our immune systems in opposition to the very language of adaptation and biodiversification on the planet. We're going to put ourselves in absolute opposition to we're going to genetically modify our species not to be able to handle the input of all of the coronaviruses. Which have been integrated into the human biology for we can date it back 780 years. You know, we can show that humans have been integrating coronaviruses into our, our genome for 780 years. I'm sure it's long before that, but it gets more and more difficult as we go back in time. But this is not new genomic information. And, and our planet and our species have been evolving within this new genome, this you know, maturing genomic pool, pool over time. And so now in 2020, for the first time, we put ourselves in blatant opposition by genetically modifying our immune systems uh, to react to a single protein, not to the viral genome, not to the intelligence of this thing, not to all the protein, to a single protein, this spike protein that's covering. And we have no idea what the ramifications of that is, but I can tell you at the big broad level is we just put ourselves in opposition to the, a very intelligent genomic language uh, that has that has built the environment that has allowed for mammals to occur, and we can talk more about that if you want as to like how much of the genome is viral and all of that. But but at a big level, what a startling year we've had! Yeah, for the first time, we've put ourselves in in opposition to the language of God, to the language of biology, to the language of the universe, to the language of life itself. We have chosen to genetically modify ourselves against it.
0: Seems like just a furthering of the arrogance that human consciousness can have, that we are somehow separate from this whole process rather than part of the process, that we can play God over the process rather than recognize that it only takes a small event, which is cataclysmically large to the human race. And you said on the last time we did the podcast that, you know, we're sort of on the edge of extinction as a species, like we're showing the signs of going that way. And You know, what you said about the timing of when the vaccine gets rolled out versus the endemic sort of transformation that uh, coronavirus is going through, like where it's starting to... Calm down and the deaths and hospitalizations are going down. I'm sure there are certain number nuances around the world. But what I've noticed uh, being Canadian, you know, paying attention to the data, it's like they're in rapid lockdowns because of case numbers, but deaths and hospitalizations are not following it. And I'm like, why are people not awake to this? And also, because I haven't had anyone on here speak specifically to this, can you speak to the test and why it can be so um, misleading, just like
1: give some people an understanding of it? Yeah. So um, PCR at its development, every single insert that you find on a polymerase chain reaction assay, which is this PCR assay that we've been using to document this pandemic, says right on it, you cannot use this to diagnose a, a condition, a clinical condition, it is not a diagnostic tool. And yet here we are rushing around the world using this tool all over the place you know, for me to get on an airplane right now and to get home, I have to to stick the swab up my nose and have somebody do this test. That on the black box of it says, this is not a diagnostic tool. So why is it not a diagnostic tool?
0: People would think we're crazy. Tool. Sorry, I just have to say like any other time we'd all be like, why are you doing that? Like, yeah. why are we not paying attention to the disclaimer on the box? Sorry, I just
1: have to say that. It's Yeah, and you know, the guy who developed the PCR for coronavirus was so vociferous about, you know, that this is not a diagnostic tool, should never be used as a diagnostic tool. He got interviewed just months before the pandemic and said, you know, PCR should never be used for this. And the reason he was being interviewed is the World Health Organization, the CDC, And uh, the NIH had staged a pandemic. In 2019, they went through the whole exercise, got all of the governmental, pseudo-governmental agencies together and said, all right, what are we, how are we gonna react to a global pandemic? What are the actions we're gonna take collectively? So they did this whole war games kind of thing that played out over the course of 2019 and leading into, into 2020 there.
0: Based on the time of year and what's going on in the world, I am all about making sure that my immune system is operating at its best. I want to make sure that it is in tip-top shape so that whatever it might meet, it is able to fight off. And so one of the ways I do that is I use Organifi Immunity. It's 100% organic. It's got 500% of your recommended daily dose of vitamin C, and that vitamin C is sourced from organic cherries. It contains the immune-boosting power of ginger, turmeric, and also zinc. It is gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, vegan, all of those things. And as I said, 100% organic. And it also has a vegan source of D3 from lichen moss, and that provides a 1,000 international units of vitamin C, which is 188% of our daily recommended dose. Vitamin D is so important to modulate innate and adaptive immunity. So if you're interested in giving your immune system a boost and a little bit of extra "uh" in order to fight off what might come towards you this season, check out Organifi.com slash create the love you get 20% off anything you order from there they have such incredible products I love them as a brand I love them as a culture I love them as a company go check them out now
1: or, all right, all right, all right. yeah, started late 2018, went all the way through 2019, wrapped up in like October. Of, and so they they ran the whole exercise. And as part of that exercise, they had decided to deploy PCR as the the global test to, to do this, you know, highly sensitive analysis of who has this virus as carriers and blah, blah, blah. And we want to catch the carriers who, uh, you know, aren't necessarily having any symptoms as so they have this whole rationale. And so in reaction to that, the inventor of the PCR for coronavirus said, this could never work for coronavirus or any other respiratory borne virus. Interviewed that those those videos have been around. All of that, he died of you know a sudden death. You know just months before hmm. this pandemic. Which if if that's... of natural causes, that's the the worst accident that could have happened to humanity this year. I really feel like we could have had a different course of the narrative if he had still been here in December of twenty nineteen. Odd timing began, Very... and so. Again, I don't I don't know that that's a conspiracy. Maybe it's just, you know, human. Maybe it's our human karma (laughs) didn't deserve an easy out. We had to walk this tough path that we've walked here, but really tragic that we lost him. He was still a young scientist. He is brilliant and uh, really had the opportunity to really change, I think, the, the course of public health and how we understand it. So why, why aren't, can't we use PCR as a diagnostic test? The reason is, is because it has nothing to do with the clinical presentation or uh, a measurement of the balance of your innate immune system with this virus. All it does is it amplifies any DNA that has entered your system from a coronavirus. Keep in mind, we have lots and lots of coronaviruses in our system that make lots and lots of different proteins. And you're typically looking for just a few of the DNA fragments with this PCR that it would be notorious of this specific coronavirus. But you have a lot of proteins that are uh, are coded by different DNA strands that could cross-react here. And so different DNA could start to overlap in its reactivity. And so you have poor specificity. For SARS-CoV-2, when you start doing PCR, there's a high, high false p- positive rate. And right, you know, I showed this publication, everything else before it got taken down back in February last year. The publication got done showing the false positive rate for this uh, PCR that was was the, the leading one at the time had an 80% false positive rate, meaning that if the po- tested it was positive. If you retest that person, or you actually do an antibody test three, six weeks later, 80% of those never had any evidence that they ever had coronavirus in their system and blah, blah, blah. So 80% false positive. That has been taken down. That got taken down quickly early on in the pandemic. And then we got news that maybe had a 10% false positive, but we've never seen the data to support that number. What the data they love reporting is that in that same study that said that there was 80% false positive, there was also a 30% false negative. Meaning that people that were presenting with coronavirus respiratory, you know, disorders were testing negative for it by thirty percent, and they loved oh. that statistic because yeah, they that, that they could then multiply any number of positive tests by another thirty percent and say that's the real number, you know. So, so we cherry picked the data, which we tend to do as scientists, and this is why placebo-controlled trials and all these things are so critical. Is we 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 tend to subconsciously, if not consciously, cherry pick the data to to tell the narrative that we want to tell. Um, But unfortunately, almost immediately, there was this weird tie-up of the pharmaceutical companies with the WHO, with central banks pumping money into these things and saying that they would print, you know, the Fed came out almost immediately in March and said, we'll print $2 trillion right now, we'll shut down the economy, we're going to give $500 billion to the pharmaceutical companies immediately, just give it to them to go develop vaccines as fast as they can. We expect nothing back from that other than your best effort. And so we gave half a trillion dollars to the pharmaceutical companies. Carte Blanche to said, go do whatever you can with it. And so that was our reactivity, you know, at that timeframe. And so our mindset quickly became that these vaccines were going to be our salvation. And this is how this pandemic was going to end. And nobody, you know, ever talked about in that common narrative from Dr. Fauci or anything else, the natural history of coronaviruses and yeah. how they spread and how they resolve and how the innate immune system adapts to them and how our genome adapts to them. And probably for the good, because a lot of those data that were showing that you know flu vaccine would increase coronavirus infection and echovirus and other adenovirus, uh, other respiratory viruses. In those same studies, we found out that if people actually got flu they were actually had a much less likelihood of getting coronavirus the next year. Versus the and vaccine, versus oh wow. And so, and this is, this is a well-known phenomenon that when somebody is exposed to a wild type virus in all of its complexity, we actually improve immunity to a vast number of, of organ, you know, viral uh, inputs the following year. And so we have this adaptive capacity where one, one respiratory experience can then prepare us for the next year and the year after and the year after. But if we interrupt that natural experience with flu, with a vaccine, not only do we lose that that kind of broader coverage and intelligence of the immune system, we, we actually elevate the risk of these other these other viruses hitting us. So it's very antithetical that we keep chasing one virus with the belief that we're going to change anything. So now we take a look at this current thing, a uh, situation where we cannot actually call any of these things, Pfizer you know, AstraZeneca, I don't care which company you go after right now uh, and the ones that are currently in development or the ones that are already on the market, none of them can be called a vaccine in the current and traditional definition of a vaccine. All of these are genetic modifications of the organism. So they are all GMO vectors. None of them have anything to do with, you know, giving a portion of the virus or anything like that. It's literally, we're going to force your genome to start making, your cells need to start making viral proteins. So it's a genetic modification of the organism, exactly the same way we genetically modified corn to handle Roundup. We're now genetically modifying humans to handle uh, a spike protein. And so instead of, and they can't handle coronavirus. We have no evidence of that. What we can say is they now have an antibody to the spike protein. And we have no idea what that does. And they're pretty honest about that, which I give them a little bit of credit for, which is at least they're obeying the rule of the law that says, we want you to get this vaccine, but by the way, we have no idea if it's safe or effective.
0: That um, makes no sense to me. We don't no know if it, sense it will to
1: decrease me. your carrier rate. We don't know if it will decrease this. And that's honest. You know, the same thing with flu vaccine. We have no idea if flu vaccine helps anybody. It certainly has never decreased the number of flu cases what it tends to do is decrease by about six hours the length of time that you have flu symptoms and so the flu vaccine again and again can show a slight decrease in the in the, the duration of symptoms in some populations age demographics uh, you know com- comorbidities and the rest but as a population flu vaccine doesn't change the the natural history of flu it infects everybody who it would have infected otherwise at best, it slightly modifies their reaction to that experience of having the flu. But it's never been published that flu vaccine actually decreases the number of flu cases. doesn't happen. In the same way, they're already wow. saying this is not going to decrease the number of coronavirus cases. It's not how this thing works. We are hoping that it decreases the amount of flu-like symptoms to coronavirus, the aches, the fever, you know, maybe downstream hospitalizations, all of that. But in the only study that allowed us as scientists to see their data, it took 20,000 vaccines to prevent two hospitalizations from coronavirus. Unfortunately, in the same study, there was two hospitalizations in the first week for severe reactions to the vaccine itself. And so there was zero benefit from a hospitalization, morbidity mortality standpoint for the vaccine with 20,000 vaccines given. And yet they put it on the market because the absolute uh, or, or the relative risk of having fever or otherwise went down by a percentage. And so they said, okay, so we decreased the amount of fever in this population. Therefore, we're going to put this vaccine on the market. We don't know what the long-term consequences are. We're sure that it doesn't you know, decrease the number of coronavirus cases. We hope that it decreases the amount of symptoms to those, in those cases, or, or at least to a portion of the people who get that. But then if we look at what you know, the reaction is to, to things, we're vaccinating largely the wrong people, right? And so yeah. we're largely vaccinating, you know, the first mandates that we're seeing come out are now around university students. So you, a couple of universities have come out and said, you have to have this you know, vaccine before you can come back to school in the fall. Well, that's not the population that has any symptoms that would cause hospitalization in the first place. I worked with uh, Gonzaga University uh, last fall, the very first U- U.S. University to get their entire student body back to school was Gonzaga there. And Gonzaga Prep and Gonzaga, they got 4,700 students back last fall in the midst of this pandemic. And those 4,700 students went through, they only had like 110 confirmed cases of, of coronavirus in the 4,700 students over, the, over that first semester. And there was zero hospitalizations. And there was zero, you know, long-term symptoms from those 110 cases, and zero of those 110 cases were were obtained through classroom contact or other school events. They were all able to be traced back to home contact, residential contact, or in a couple cases, uh, like weekend parties that were, you know, off campus. And there was the, you know, you know all of the classic risk factors: no sleep. Tons of alcohol, uh, lots of uh, bodily fluids being swapped, you know, and so there was like, you know, half a dozen cases or something that came from one of these parties. But otherwise, it was all residential. So the vast majority is residential, meaning that you have to live with the person for a long period of time, have a very prolonged exposure to this coronavirus before you're even going to contract it. And so now we have, you know, a very nice 4,700 college students is a huge case study, you know, and so you've got a great case study saying we don't need to vaccinate college kids because they literally don't end up in the hospital from this thing. That's not who we should be vaccinating, especially because they are the ones that with the most robust immune system that when they see that spike protein genetic modification, they're the most likely to prevent the most feared complication of what these these genetic modification or uh, or you know, previous uh, uh, RNA fragment vaccines have been done like SARS and MERS, we tried to do RNA for that. We've done other RNA viruses. And every time we do that, we, we create in about 10% of the people, this very frightening phenomenon of hyperandrogen state where it, it hypersensitizes your immune system to seeing that wild type virus in the future. And when you see that, you go into something called cytokine storm, which then ends you up in multi-organ failure and high potential for death. And so if, if even 1% did that, that'd be terrifying. But 10% of a population that's asymptomatic already on a diminishing pandemic that is going to be gone no matter what in 2022, no matter what we do, and we now sensitize everybody to coronavirus or any other virus that carries a similar spike protein, and we see even 0.1% of those vaccinated have this hyperandrogen state, we are going to create chaos. And the scary thing is if we keep using PCR to detect tiny fragments of virus, we're gonna blame coronavirus. We're gonna say coronavirus just killed that person and we need to vaccinate everybody again. No, it wasn't coronavirus. Coronavirus was natural in the environment, barely touched this person, but their immune system overreacted because they got vaccinated in 2020, 2021. And now they're they're gonna perpetuate the fear of coronavirus by the, by the fact that they're actually sensitizing the population or a very small percentage of that population to this virus. And they'll be able to tell us horrific stories from here on to the end of time that coronavirus is this bad killer of young people. Because I guarantee you in 2022, the ones that are going to die are not going to be 80-year-olds. We're going to suddenly see 18-year-olds, 24-year-olds, 30-year-olds dying of coronavirus, quote unquote, because they're actually in a totally ad- adaptive immune crisis where their immune system is killing them. They're going to these cytokine storms and dying of multi- organ failure because of the sensitization that happens with all of the RNA viruses that we've tried. And there was hypersensitization already documented in that Pfizer and other ones at the beginning of this process. So it's already been showing that that this GMO approach to vaccination can create hypersensitivity vac- hyper or hyper uh, antigen status, just as the true RNA vaccines have done in the past. So we're, we're setting ourselves up for a perpetual Crisis, that we're gonna keep relying on coronavirus because we're gonna keep doing PCR. We're gonna keep in this you know, lockstep and we're gonna to be told every few months that there's a new variant of some coronavirus or somebody will come up with an adenovirus next. It's threatening the planet, we need a new GMO uh, update. And so we're gonna line up for genetic modification over and over again in a species and perpetu- perpetuate the, the belief in this as we hypersensitize a, a small portion of those people that get a vaccine to those natural wild viruses in the future.
0: Yeah, I'm curious that you just mentioned, and all of that, by the way, is sad and scary and not spoken about unless, you know, like I've done the research, I've listened to you speak, I listen to other physicians speak before their stuff gets censored where they're talking about these types of things. And like, it scares me on many levels as a former pharmaceutical rep too, of like looking at, you know, I know the inner workings, the, you know, the relationships I'm just like, this should be top of mind, this type of fear, especially because I have you on a podcast last year saying it's going to the the pandemic is going to go away in two years. All coronavirus is last two years. Like we knew all this stuff, like scientists knew all this stuff. And even the pandemic plan of like, Hey, this is our pandemic plan. Those all went out the damn window and we all locked down and put masks on our face, which we also said don't work. And then all of a sudden they magically work. And any study that shows they might not is like, "Mm, let's censor that. Like I just, to me, I'm, I'm angry about it because how do you get this information if I'm not interviewing you or you're not on another podcast? Because you certainly can't go
1: put a YouTube video up chatting about this. No, it's, it's interesting, you know, and and the white house just announced that it, it's launching. I can't remember if it was 10 billion or insane amount of dollars being poured to a uh, vaccine. Uh, how did they phrase it? It was so scary the way that it was phrased, but basically a vaccine belief support program. And so they were gonna launch billions of dollars of commercials oh and everything else to, to make the population feel good about vaccines. And so that, that's, that's that. This it's new a gaslighting campaign. Yeah. yeah, and so the new White House is spending billions of dollars. So the answer is nobody's gonna be able to get this information over a short period of time because there's billions of dollars against, I don't know what your production costs for this podcast, but I'm guessing it's well south of $10 billion. So <laughs> yes you, know, well, you know, wow. we have so little dollars to get this information out there. And so I launched the, the Global Health Education Summit monthly um, last year in the midst of Love the, it. The, the thing I realized, we have to have a forum for real science to be discussed. And people need long-form discussion. They need long-form education because it's not enough for me to give them a soundbite of masks don't work, blah, 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 because there's too much of the other other voice. And so the other voice just keeps repeating itself. Masks work, masks work, masks work, masks work. And, and they don't show any science. They don't show anything. They just repeat the narrative. And that's their approach. And so I realized I need to spend time educating the population so they can make an informed decision about everything, not Forget about the pandemic. I want people to start making informed decisions about taking a statin drug for their heart disease or not. Like, they're not given that information before they're thrown on these drugs. They don't realize that drug actually increases their rate of coronavirus death. They don't realize that an ACE inhibitor that they were put on for their blood pressure or their kidney disease increases their risk of coronavirus death. We have to we have to start at the very beginning of biology and teach it to the consumer now because the consumer can no longer rely on its regulatory agencies that have been compromised by their by the, getting in bed with this pharmaceutical industries at large so we have a crisis on our hands we have a crisis of information uh, and we have a crisis of of a public narrative that is being refor- reinforced not just by the white house's multi-billion dollar effort but by a tr- multi-trillion dollar effort of the global media right and so you start to add up the entire media budget for the world uh the time warners and everything else and, and you realize wow there are there are nation states that can't even touch that kind of budget um, for their entire national function, you know, and that's being poured into a single narrative. Any channel, any time of day, is going to tell you where coronavirus is, how many people are cases, what the yeah. current lockdown is. We are dedicating some, you know, it must be an obscene number. I'd be interested to see the number. It must be, you know, what is it, 60, 80% of all media right now in regards to news is being dedicated to this one narrative. And so that's a, that is the ultimate brainwashing. We've never seen a bigger media campaign in the history of mankind, you know, n- not, n- nothing that well-funded, nothing that well-coordinated. Right. In fact, as you can see that here, the exact same report on the street on, you know, in France, as you can in the United States, as you can in Brazil, the coordination of this multinational media conglomerate has never been achieved before. And so for the first time, we we have this situation of a medical complex that is now blending itself with a military complex. So we have a military medical complex that is allowing for National Guard to come in and vaccinate children before the pandemic. You know, California signed legislation that said the National Guard could actually remove a child from the home if their parents were refusing to vaccinate that child. And so that's been on the books for years in California. So yeah, you know, we've we've allowed for this slippery slope of the military medical complex to come into a, to be a reality, and the pandemic I think was the opportunity for it to become a global control rather than a U.S. national control uh, issue, and so the U.S. exported its pharmaceutical military complex to the world through this incredible narrative of the pandemic.
0: How do you feel like when you're speaking to your colleagues? What is the sort of consensus or temperature for? because you're you speak out and share you know all of your stuff is supported by data and you know like how do your colleagues feel watching the censorship of you know each of you when you speak out and like it really i mean it takes away any safe dialogue where normally science can is a dialogue not a fact or a fixed endpoint and i'm just curious of of How's everyone responding? Because you can lose your jobs. You can lose, you know, if you work for a certain hospital or or healthcare system. And you know, in Canada, the same thing has occurred. And worldwide, we've seen this. You know, we've we've got physicians speaking out, but you know, people go trust doctors, not that one.
1: You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's what you would expect, I guess. You get you have a lot of physicians and scientists that have refused to budge on their reality and and speak their truth and are are you know. You know, rooted in the, in their knowingness of this, but they got they got shut down immediately, and so you know, they are unable to voice their opinion. And so, I I have had to be very clear that I'm not anti-vax at all. I want an intelligent vaccine program that would help pre- prevent disease in my grandchildren. But what I'm watching unfold is not a safe or effective approach to vaccination. So I'm not anti-vax, I'm anti-blind science. You know? yeah. We cannot <laughs> Can we write checks to the pharmaceutical industry and say, put something on the market in the next six months and we won't hold you to any efficacy or safety standards. That, that can't happen. That is, not, that is not scientific. That is not rational. That is not humane. Uh, and so that's what I'm against is the process that's at hand, the science I'm all for Let's figure out what the innate immune system of humanity looks like now that we've had the microbiome revolution. Now that we know that human health doesn't happen unless there's a huge, diverse microbiome within you. And then in the more recent discovery of the virome of like this genomic pool of intelligence that we swim within, it's not against us, it's for us. So now let's re-understand human physiology, not against nature, not opposed to nature, but within our natural design. That's the vaccination program we need in the next couple of years is given what we now know about the microbiome and the virome, what is the intelligent approach to developing homeostasis or balance with the viruses and bacteria in you and around you? Certainly it's no longer to sterilize you. We, that's what we thought up until, you know, really until the last decade or two, we, physicians just thought bacteria were bad invaders to the body. We now know that the opposite is true. The bacteria are literally nurse mating your body into health every day. And if you don't have that organic garden, diverse ecosystem within you, your immune system doesn't work. Your cancer rates go up. Your heart disease rates go up. Your mood disorders go skyrocketing. Sleep falls apart. Chronic pain sets in. You know, the whole American syndrome is there. We need this new concept of human health in which the human cell no longer sits at the center of the of the Model. We need to realize that Mother Earth in her biodiversity sits at the center of human health. And once we embrace that change in relationship, once we embrace our humble role within this matrix of life on Earth, we will imagine a much different vaccine program. And so I've got, you know, on... Uh, change.org, I've got a a petition to scientists and physicians and the rest to sign the petition that says, we need to reevaluate. We need to re-ask the questions about the innate immune system now that we know about the microbiome and the virome. We need a different approach. And so I'm all for being part of the future vaccine industry that puts itself in line with mother nature instead of uh, in opposition to it, seeks balance with the microbiome instead of conflict with the microbiome seeks balance with the viruses of the respiratory system rather than conflict with them. Uh, We will find a a pathway into that. The science is really cool. If we start building resources within nutrients in our food, our vaccine program could actually be delivered through nutritious food instead of through Mm. syringes in the arm. Our, our, Our nutrients within our food could be engineered through good soil management, through good farm practices, through the rest, to have exactly the right mycelial intelligence from the fungi within those soils that would imbue that food with the antiviral components that have long been there and we just engineered it out of our food through this you know last few decades of chemical warfare against our food and nutrition sources so that that's the excitement that i have is we're, we need to broaden our definition of vaccines, and maybe that's the silver lining of, of this pandemic and our response to it is we just broadened our definition of vaccines. Yeah. now it's genetic modification is included in the definition of vaccination. And so now we need to to modify that that behavior one more time and say, what if vaccination actually means supporting the innate immune system's response to these viruses mm. instead of putting the innate immune system in in vicious you know opposition to all of these viruses? These viruses have a role and we know they do because they've always been part of the human experience and they allowed us to occur. What a fascinating perspective of
0: of working in, uh, in unison with the way nature already works, you know, and that's not a leap, you know, I'm curious, you know, we hear a lot of dialogue about variants, 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 and just like to because uh, i imagine most people are like oh my god a variant of concern that's very much a a, a, wor- a group of words that triggers the amygdala <laughs> for sure so i'm curious just if you could express a little more of how maybe viruses work and the immune system works uh in unison and 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 to handle those variants
1: very good yeah so viruses are um, uh, a step up in adaptation capacity of biology. Before the viruses, we we had something called horizontal gene transfer. Um, And the way in which uh, bacteria back, you know, three and a half billion years ago did this, and they still do it today, is to bump into each other. And as soon as they approach each other, they can swap genetic information through these little envelope packages. And they swap them back and forth and can quickly do adaptation for biologic benefit and interestingly, they're not selfish about gain of function, you know, whereas our laboratories that are doing gain of function viral research, they're always trying to patent some new gain of function. So they're going to patent this as potential chemical warfare agent or they're going patent it as something else. But they're always, biology has never done that with genetic modification. It's always looked to share genetic gain. And so as soon as gain of function was discovered by a bacteria three and a half billion years ago, it would immediately swap it to all of its surrounding bacteria of species. It didn't matter. They just wanted this new genetic information out there. So they did this to this horizontal gene transfer mechanism. During that process, there was an opportunity to actually absorb not just the genetic information of a nearby bacteria, but ingest an entire Bacterium and all of its genetic information. And so that created the first plant plastid or the first mitochondria, ultimately, uh, for human cells. And these became the power plants. The, the emergence of these double bacterial intelligence systems, two bacteria in one, uh, with different mechanisms of action, allowed us to shift from fermentation energy production to, uh, to respiratory. Uh, and and oxygen based uh, energy production. And that is a 10X leap in energy production. So that's what allowed multicellular organisms to occur is they needed to be able to produce much more energy than a single bacteria. And they did it by this adaptive biologic swapping that was kind of this genetic transfer mechanism that allowed this to happen. Now what happens is inside of each of my human cells, I keep a population of these tiny little bacteria called mitochondria that are a double-walled bacteria with a lot of uh, uh, interesting circular DNA, which is viral uh, program. So all viruses carry a circular genome, or the vast majority of them do. And, And that's what the mitochondrial DNA looks like, is all this viral genomic information packed inside these little bacteria that live inside my cells, and they reproduce. And I inherited all of my mitochondria bacteria from my mother. Uh, dad's sperm dumps its mitochondria before it uh, infuses its nuclear DNA into the, mm. the ovum to fertilize the first cell of the human. And so mom populates this organic garden of bacterial guys with all this viral information. And interestingly, in these last few years, we've come to find out that there's a constant swapping of information genetically between the, the microbiome inside your cells and your nuclear DNA which would wow. go on to reproduce your body, whether it be a kidney cell or an, uh, a first you know, embryonic cell that's dividing to go make that embryo. We can do swapping of information between the mitochondria, which is little bacteria with viral de- genomics to the, the, that human 46 chromosomes that you inherited from mom and dad. They're swapping information all the time.
0: Wow!
1: And so what I'm trying to paint you a picture of is when we start to talk about viruses, we're really talking about genetic communication. And at the beginning, it started with just this ability, you had to bump into the nearby cell to transmit that information onto the population. The advent of bacteriophage and viruses was that these packets of information began to take on traits that allowed them to travel long distances. And so suddenly you could get a genetic update to to biology and you could send it out into the air around the organism and and pass that information on very quickly to large populations. And this was a extraordinary boost in the acceleration of life diversification on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the amount of life you know changed between three and a half billion years ago and three billion years ago, almost nothing. But suddenly, as we started to get more and more viral communication capacity within the, the uh, organisms of the world, we able, were able to get gain a function and adaptation and biodiversification all of the time at this accelerating rate. And so we developed, you know, by 55 million years ago, we had dinosaurs and massive ferns the size of houses and, you know, soil that was so vibrant with microbial life that we can't even imagine at this point. And then a big extinction event happened. Mm -hmm. And the big extinction event didn't wipe out life on Earth. It wiped out 87 to 97%. And depending on which of the extinctions you look at, we've had five big extinctions on the planet. But that last one is so curious to me because if I was Mother Earth and I created the dinosaurs, I've been pretty pleased with that. What, what a cool <laughs> invention that was biologically. I love the dinosaurs. What kid doesn't love the dinosaurs? And you got triceratops and, t- and the pterodactyls and all these cool animals. Yeah. But it's so interesting that mother earth never looked back at that event and said, we need to struggle back to make the dinosaurs again. Instead right. it created birds and mammals and the intelligence mm-hmm. of the planet increased and the, and, we, and it developed deciduous trees and flowering plants that did not exist before the previous extinction. Well, how did that occur? It happened because of the viruses. And so viruses are not living beings. They're just genetic information packets. And when you put an organism under stress, it needs to do more adaptation to see if it can get out from underneath the stress. Mm-hmm. But extinction-level stress on all of the organisms of the Earth, they're going to create so much adaptive Interesting. information- that's then stored in the viral genome that's in the ocean water, it's in the air. There's 10 to the 31 viruses in the air, which is 10 million times more than our stars in the entire universe. I mean, these numbers yeah. are so yeah. gigantuan. So we're in a, just this ocean uh, or this you know stew of, of viruses in the air. There's another 10 to the 31 in, in the seawater. There's another 10 to the 30 viruses in the soil beneath our feet. We are in these galactic universes of genetic information. And every time you put an extinction event on the planet, life bursts out more intelligently, more diverse wow. because of the adaptation that happens under stress to biology. And so as we approach the sixth great extinction, we have an interesting equation of, we can certainly march the rest of the planet and ourselves into extinction, no problem. Just keep doing what we're doing, keep, keep ordering everything on Amazon, keep buying stuff. You're already participating brilliantly in, in this great extinction event, which is a huge explosion of genetic information on the planet. And we can call them pandemics, we can call them whatever but literally it's just biology looking for an escape mechanism to an extinction event. Mm. On the back end of this, can you imagine what organisms come after birds, dolphins, humans? What are the organisms of Earth that are that much more intelligent, going from reptiles of dinosaurs to humans, birds, and dolphins? What is the next leap of genetic information that, that we are creating right now under our extinction level stress on the planet? That's super exciting to me. I would love to be around in 100 million years to see what's right. Here. That'd be pretty fascinating. But what if we stopped in the midst of this extinction event? We've now created huge amounts of stress in human biology and otherwise all over the planet. We've lost some 50% of life on earth over the last 40, 50 years. So we're halfway through the great extinction event. What if we stopped our behavior over the next decade? What if we just changed everything? What if we re-engineered everything to be in line with nature instead of opposed to nature? our our transportation industry, our communications networks, our 5G towers. What if we started demanding that 5G towers had to emit biologically optimizing frequencies of resonance if they were going to exist at all? Mm. So that the 5G towers actually were propagating life rather than opposing life. That would be super cool. Like it's same technology used completely differently in line with nature instead of against nature. What if we said, okay, genetic modification, all this CRISPR technology of gene editing, super interesting. But instead of genetically modifying our plants and food so that they can handle toxins that then end up in our food what if we genetically modified and, and use CRISPR to actually increase the ability of plants to absorb nutrients that fought viruses And so we genetically modified our food to be more nutrient dense, more nutrient intelligent so that we never had a pandemic again. We could do that we can use CRISPR to do wow. that. We can use 5G to do that. We can use these things for great good. We choose not to because there's not short-term gains. We need to create a long ball vision for where we're going as humanity. And we need to start to innovate in that direction. And right now, the entire financial system from stem to stern are built on short-term gains because it was built in a masculine archetype. The masculine yeah. archetype is goal-oriented, short-term, win the game, win the war, whatever it is, but but you fail to see the force for the truth. The The feminine archetype is not goal-oriented. It's actually process-oriented. And so if we back up for a moment and said, humanity... We're going to let go of the Western paradigm of, of the, the masculine archetype of goal-oriented fiscal policy, finance, investment strategies, you know, venture capital, all these things. We're going to reimagine that into a process. And we're going to start building investment vehicles that allow for a long ball 10, 20 year process to be put in place. That would encourage industries as big as the food system, as big as the agriculture industry, to come in line with Mother Nature and co-create with her instead of be opposed to her. Instead of being extractive, it would be Mm co-creative. And We already know how to do that at the farming level. We haven't built the financial models to allow the farmers to do that because we are incentivizing them financially to only do this one thing over here, which is grow as much genetically modified corn as possible. And so if we change our incentives and bring our incentives financially in line with a feminine archetype of we need a process-oriented belief system that nature knows how to create life, and we need to start to work within that to be co-creators of life rather than extractors of it, we would change the world so quickly. And we would have extinction-level intelligence within the virome to see what would happen Mm -hmm. next. And we could actually be witness to the next explosion of life and biodiversity of the planet. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to pass on to our children?
0: Not interesting to think that the pressure on life today that you're speaking about could be this invitation to a collaborative approach that expands consciousness, nutrition, all these things that we are like aiding and the consciousness or the intelligence that's about aiding is actually what contributes to the more intelligent life. I love that. You know, I, in what you said about if you in some way help the plants absorb new new, more nutrients we would benefit from that and instead we seem to be removing nutrients from food calling it you know a burger when it's really just a pile of lab created you know it's not intelligent food and i mean you're speaking to i love i mean i love the beauty of the what's possible and i think we always have to hold on to what's possible and at the same time there's this sort of bridge between there has like there is something that has to die in order for that to be born and you know i i'm i'm i get scared of the the level of inability to even hear anything that opposes the common narrative and recognizing like how much that in you know affects our biology, this inability to hear discourse, this inability to maybe even feel hope that you're inviting into us.
1: We need the journey is one interesting thing, right? And so, uh, you know, it's easy for me to get extremely frustrated about what's happened in the last year. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if I get a good night's sleep and I wake <laughs> up and go walk in the, in the woods and, and get some time out in the ocean, I come away with the experience and the reality of we're walking the human story this is it this is part of the human story now is that in 2020 we decided that it was reasonable to genetically modify a vast amount of our population against a single viral protein without any evidence that it would be work or be safe or anything and we just did that all right so my own family we're here for these vaccines so it's not like i've convinced anybody i haven't even convinced my own family members that they should question this thing so I have completely failed to bring any level of you know, change I, as far as I can tell. And so I, I'm not here to create change. I'm here to ask questions at this point of what could it be other yeah. than what we have right now? And we needed the path that we had, I think, to let the pendulum swing finally to that level of extremity where that we let the pharmaceutical companies do everything. Yeah. We just outsourced life to them. And we said, we're going to trust you guys. You know what? Here's all the money that the, the Fed can print. We're, we're now $4 trillion into printing money in the last 11 months. So $4 trillion, and we can print money at will. So just keep doing what you're doing. We trust you to solve this. We, we had to walk that walk. Uh, as a pe- species, we're going to have to lose faith in the chemical industries to create clean technology for transportation, to do anything. We have to stop trusting that they are, have our interests at heart. The pharmaceutical companies are hard to understand it seem like they're in the health industry but how could they possibly put drugs on the market that kill people well, they do every single day um and so you know that's hard to reconcile in the human mind and i think that ultimately we don't change unless we see the reality for what it is and so in this extraordinary way you know we have to do the pendulum swing because humans don't adapt easily uh to new ways of thinking so what is the path we've walked? Why, where are we right now? Where we are right now, if I take the, the viewpoint of scientists, uh, is that we are in the midst of the largest philosophical revolution in history of science right now in the last 10 years. And to paint that picture, I would, I would point to 2,000 years ago when Pythagoras, an incredible mathematician out of Greece, suddenly realized the planet wasn't flat. And he came out with all of these incredible scientific proofs that the the world was actually a sphere. That was so disruptive to human thought that here we are 2,000 years later and we have a very vibrant flat earth society. And so after 2,000 years, we still haven't convinced (laughs) the world that the world is actually a sphere. Humans are really holding on to the belief that maybe this is still flat. And especially when they see government agencies insisting that it is a sphere without really showing any data or knowing science or anything else. These, everybody's like, "Yeah, oh, it is a circle. It is a sphere. Well, that's not reassuring to anybody who's lost faith in their government. And so I understand what what's fueling the Flat Earth Society is this kind of group doubt or doubt of, of government authority or scientific narratives. I think we deserve that level of skepticism, frankly, because we haven't done a good job of allowing narratives to, 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 and discourse to happen. Where we are now, though, is you know 1600 years after the discovery that the planet is a sphere we find out from you know the discovery of the telescope that the earth was not at the center of the solar system Hmm. and that it wasn't actually the center of, of the galaxies and all the rest and suddenly we were not the center of creation and that was not only extremely disruptive to science it was disruptive to religion And so we suddenly had to go down this pathway of, well, what if there's other planets out there then? And what if there's other people out there? Like, you know, it's this existential thing that's challenged us religiously and spiritually. I thought we were, I thought we were the penultimate invention of life within the universe and God is made man for this thing. And we had all these narratives and we continue to struggle with those today, 400 years later. And then in the last 10 years that telescope becomes a new technology which is a a genomics sequencer a genome sequencer and when you can genetically sequence an organism like a human and find out that we hardly exist outside of the viral data within us it suddenly puts not humans at the center of the human life experience it puts the microbiome at the center Mm. and so how much more disruptive is it to say that humans aren't the center of humanity humans aren't actually the center of human consciousness humans are a amalgamation of biology on the planet that is expressing its collective intelligence, its collective consciousness through this human experiment, through this human moment that we're in, that's only 200,000 years, this brief split second in the history of the planet is expressing itself human right now. But that human expression is not centered on human biology. In fact, it's the biology of your soil under your feet and the, and the food that you would ingest that's defining that human experience much more so than anything you receive from mom and dad genetically. And so you are the amalgamation of mother nature herself in your ability to have consciousness right now. Wow. And so what a fascinating, necessary journey for us to take. And if we have to go into extinction now, that's okay because we, we made this paradigm leap forward in the ability of biology to hold consciousness. And you can see that in the difference of, you know, a deer that's running through the and running on instinct alone to, you know, a monkey that starts to have a, a much different concept of self and a much different ability to interact with its surroundings and community and all of that with a different mindset. And so we can see these higher orders of biology march along and then you get Homo sapiens and the Homo sapiens have the ability to not only imagine themselves within a community. They're imagining other universes. They're imagining gods. They're imagining, you know, you know, angels and demons. And we've come up with all of these extraordinary abstract concepts around the human experience that are invisible to us. But we have held these beliefs of angels and demons and deities for thousands and thousands of years within humanity. So what we have now proven is that we can advance biology on planet earth to be able to hold abstract consciousness and behave according to that abstract you know belief system. So now what happens when you take another iteration leap from dinosaur to human to human to whatever comes next? We've contributed perhaps. Perhaps we've walked the human journey we needed to walk. And so my children that showed up and are now young adults, my grandchildren that will show up, my offspring, you know, 100 years down the road at the end of humankind or 10,000 years at the birth of a new humanity. They've all going, they're all going to show up on purpose. And if that purpose was to come to this penultimate point of extinction with the level of consciousness that we had derived up until that moment, that is still a high purpose. And this is what I find in my hospice work every day is that when somebody's given that terminal diagnosis or you got six months to live, they start living their life completely differently than they ever have before. Mm. And that's fascinating. Yes. And so when I tell humanity, Hey, all the scientists are pointing into something phenomenal in the agricultural community, which is there's only 60 harvests left on Earth, period. And by the way, the human biologists have come up with the reality that in 80 to 100 years, humans are extinct. Well, you just got put on hospice humanity, almost sapiens, sapiens, you just entered your hospice moment. This is the end. This is the end of humanity as we know it. It's the end of the planet as we've known it. And so now, how do we change our behavior?
0: Yeah.
1: And is this hospice moment exactly what we needed to change that behavior so that we go out highly conscious? Because it's one of the most beautiful things I witnessed is humans going out at their highest vibration. And that last few months, weeks, and even hours of their life, they, they bes- are bespoke with the highest wisdom. They, they have the most extraordinary energetic interactions with their loved ones, with their family members, etc., so much beauty can pour out of that. And so if that's how we go out, beautiful, perfect. This it's, it should happen. Or if we transform and you know, come into alignment with nature to find out that humanity does not need to go extinct, and we can actually become the most generative co-creative species that's ever been on the planet. And we can, in just 200 short years, turn this into a garden of Eden. We could reforest North Africa and the Sahara. We could reforest you know, uh, the deserts of, of South South America and, and Central America, we could reforce this planet into the most vibrant, diverse, species-embracing planet that exists in many solar systems and galaxies around us and all the rest. We could become that vibrant hub that is so much more vibrant than anything we've seen before. So that's what we could do with our hospice moment. Hmm. The only equation that really frightens me and makes me really heartbroken is the possibility that we instead in our hospice moment where every single year, more chronic disease happens, more cancer happens in our children, more autoimmune disease happens in our young people, more mood disorders, more suicides, more homicides, more anger, more war. And we turn more and more of the pain over to the pharmaceutical companies that will happily make more and more narcotics for us to drug ourselves into oblivion. That's the end point I fear. And so I don't actually oppose the possibility of extinction. I'm afraid that we move into it in such a drugged up stupor that we don't contribute to the higher consciousness of the next iteration of life on this planet. And so my hope is that we shake each other awake in this hospice moment and say, let's stop the drugs. Let's not focus on preserving, you know, more years of life and let's look at quality of life. Let's look at rising the our vibrational perception of the world around us and the universe around us such that we would call in new life on this planet. Uh, life more diverse perhaps certainly more intelligent let's let's go there and be in that high conscious state where we're calling in a future that might or might not include humanity but definitely is in a higher state of of beauty and coherence and less of this extractive destructive uh, you know oppositional behavior that we've expressed as a species we need to end that that needs to end before we wipe out so much beauty and, and so uh, let's do it awake, whatever we do next. Let's not allow the pharmaceutical companies to, to palliate us into a drugged up state of stupor that we don't even realize the stew that we're sitting in. And so if we need to go extinct, I'm okay with that. Um, death is a beautiful thing. It's a rebirth. And, and we've seen that on the planet as much as we've seen that in single individuals. It is a rebirth. Uh, the, the last global health education summit we did, we just did on death, dying, and rebirth if you if you missed that one please go tune into that it was mind-blowing beauty uh five physicians and two uh, or uh, five healthcare providers from death doulas to neurosurgeons um, expressing uh, their experiences around death and dying that will completely change your viewpoint of death i guarantee it you will not walk away from that two hours the same person so dive into that. Uh, the month before that, we did uh, what happened last year, which was a three-hour so yeah. piece on ninety-five different science, you know, published peer-reviewed science journal articles on what actually happened during the pandemic. And this month, we're doing uh, genetic genetically modified organisms, and we're doing a deep dive on the science of GMO foods, GMO uh, oh, pigs, salmon's, and GMO humans. And, and now that we have. Uh, this new quote-unquote vaccine program going so we're we're taking a look at genetic modification as a deep dive but of all of those i would start at the death and dying piece because when you lose the fear of death then this whole discussion around extinction and are we going to die all that instead just starts to ask the cooler question of what are we going to become on the backside of that what are we going to rebirth on the backside of human death whether it be my death from coronavirus or my death from cancer or my death from extinction of the planet <laughs> What, what's, what do I want to be a part of rebirthing on the other side of that? And those are the questions that I think we have to do because those will be the transformative paradigm shifting behavior, shifting questions and answers that we will go after. If we keep asking what is the next vaccine to the next virus that appears, we can't compete. There's 10 to the 31 viruses. There's 10 to the 31 viruses. <laughs> There's no way we can biologically advance you know, enough genetic modification to change your behavior to all those 10 to the 31 viruses. And so uh, that, is a, that is an impossible game to play. Uh, being against nature is impossible. She's too big. She's too intelligent. She's got billions of years of experience uh, that predates our 10 years of experience with CRISPR. And so uh, we are idiots in the world of, of, of genetic engineering. This planet has been genetically engineering the potential for life since its origin. We need to bow to that intelligence that's been born out from billions of years of experiments. And we are the result of the most recent experiment. And it's beautiful. We are beautiful if we stop behaving the way that we do, and uh, we have huge potential. We have huge potential as a species, and we can realize that in our death and rebirth, or we can realize it by simply changing our behavior and humbling ourselves before this extraordinary nature that we live within, the extreme beauty that has been imbued and endowed upon this earth uh, by some consciousness, by some ordered Uh, biology that is much greater than this planet, that is much greater than humanity and our brief history. Uh, We need to bow to it. We need to become extremely humble to the extreme intelligence of the design of nature and start to behave within it. I mean, amen to all of that. The
0: the invitation to harmony, to reverence, to curiosity, to not avoid suffering, but rather sit with it and ask it questions and recognize that all of this is, part of the miracle that is this you know even this conversation occurring in two different parts of the world through the magic that um has been created on this planet um zach just to to honor your time and all the things i I did want to finish this with asking about because i take it every day but the ion biome just to let people know a little bit about it and and how it works and 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 how that could be an invitation back in in some small way right? or a big way.
1: Yeah. So the science behind this uh, product uh, is really what brought me to my current you know, capacity to have the discourse that we just had. Um, I did not have this worldview uh, 10 years ago when I was designing chemotherapy at the University of Virginia. I was of the opposite viewpoint, that I was going to be a part of a technological advancement that would engineer cancer out of the human experience. But it was a daunting day. It was somewhat of an embarrassing, but definitely heartbreaking day when I realized that there had never been a single case of cancer in the history of mankind that had been caused by a lack of chemotherapy. And so I suddenly, in that moment, realized no matter how smart or good I got at making new, non-toxic, less toxic versions of chemotherapy, I would never prevent prevent a single case of cancer. And that that was a that was a very discouraging reality to step into. Uh, it was a death point for my pharmaceutical model of health because I realized that the same could be asked for any heart attack that it had ever been had. No heart attack has ever been caused by a lack of Lipitor, you know? Right. And so it, it, I was going down the wrong path, literally. I, I could not come to a, a beneficial endpoint for humanity in that pharmaceutical model. And so in that moment, my world changed and I, the only thing I could figure out to live up to my Hippocratic Oath at that point was nutrition. And so as an endocrinologist at the time, you know, dealing with a ton of diabetics and all this, I had done a lot of diabetes, nutrition education, which meant like, you know, eat more protein, eat less carbohydrates. You know, we were just so mixed up in our beliefs about nutrition and diabetes alone, but I had started to go down that avenue. And I'd had uh, a couple of doctors really shake up my world of understanding nutrition uh, and Neil Barnard, being a great example of it, wrote a book called uh, Reversing uh, Diabetes. I had never known that you could reverse diabetes. I was an endocrinologist trained at the third best endocrine program in the world. A diabetes specialist didn't know you could reverse wow. type 2 diabetes in the course, course of a couple months. And so uh, that was a huge revelation to me. And so that had started me in down the nutrition pathway. And, it, it, and so as I left the university and the whole chemotherapy development world, I decided I would start a nutrition center for reversing chronic disease through food. And so in that journey, we started uh, to practice extreme levels of uh, nutrient delivery. So we were juicing literally pounds of kale for our cancer patients every day. We were just you know trying to turn our patients green and orange with kale and carrots that we were <laughs> force feeding them. And in that journey, came to an extraordinary realization that the food that we were feeding them no longer had the medicine within it. We, we were doing exactly what Campbell and everybody was doing in the 1970s to great success, and it wasn't working anymore. And so that took me into nutrient density and ultimately into agriculture to, to find out why the food wasn't working anymore, which took me into this incredible world of soil science. And that's where we discovered uh, the science that would become Ion Biome as a product line. Uh, ion is a family of molecules Uh, that are made by bacteria and fungi in the soil and when they metabolize nutrients. And so when the microbiome eats, it creates a communication network as a result. And the communication network tells the entire organism of life within the soil or within your body what to do with that energy. And so it's a very brilliant model of how the world and of nature works is not only does it figure out how to use energy, In the digestion of that energy, it produces an information stream as to how to best utilize that for repair, regeneration of the organisms that would consume the downstream food. And so that's what we discovered within soil and then ultimately within the human gut. In 2013, we launched the company, uh, which at the time was uh, the product was called Restore. And we were simply extracting uh, all of this intelligence out of uh, fossil soils to put into the, the human experience. And I say simply, it's a little bit complex <laughs> on how to get these carbon molecules out of fossil soils and all that. But, but it didn't take long before we were getting pretty proficient. Now, our, our facility is night and day compared to where we were seven years ago. And we're able to do this in an extraordinary capacity of taking these huge volumes of, of fossil soils and extracting massive amounts of information out of these soils. And we put those into liquid supplements that can be delivered uh, in the case of our first gut product uh, in the form of a liquid supplement before each meal. And it would inform your body how to accelerate the repair process and regenerative process, not because it was telling the body to do anything. This was the first supplement that actually does nothing to the body. Instead, it coordinates the body's natural response to food and nutrition. And so it can, it, when you put this in, in before food, you see an acceleration of protein synthesis from the human body. You see acceleration of immune antioxidant reservoirs being built. You see this whole acceleration of life happen, not because the product is doing that, but because it's facilitating the communication between the cells of the human body and informing it how to use the energy from food to the the organism's highest benefit. So it's a really cool way of harnessing the communication network of the microbiome for human health. And so that's what's really evolved to to my understanding that human health is not centered upon the human cell at all. The human Mm -hmm. cell is only there in response to the intelligence of the nature that it dwells within. And that's exactly what our product has proved out over time. Uh, we launched the sinus product uh, some years back and it became one of the fastest growing products in the natural sector uh, because it turns out the sinuses, like your gut, tend to leak a lot when we're exposed to chemicals. So alcohol, probably the oldest chemical that damaged the the, the barrier system of your, your nasal sinuses and gut, but uh, the chemicals of today's food system, the Roundup and glyphosate and gluten, refined gluten products, all of these damage these barrier systems causing leak causing reactivity to our environment. So we get allergies uh, to seasonal allergies. We get allergies to our food, food sensitivities. All of that is due to the leak of these barrier systems. And when you put the communication network of the microbiome back in place with ion, you get this rapid reorientation of that's outside, this is inside, and the immune system doesn't have to do the heavy lifting of reacting to everything anymore. You have intelligent barriers put back together, the tight junctions zipper back together, the, the nasal epithelium and the gut. In this summer of 2021, I'm very excited to be launching uh, the the Beauty From Within campaign. We have been working for years to create our skin uh, fortification oh, spray wow, that yeah. uh, sprays onto the skin as a completely different way of working with uh, the uh, keratinocytes than any skin product ever has. It encourages the keratinocytes to not only create a solid barrier against the chemicals in your, the water of the shower you're taking in, but probably more importantly, the chemicals that are in the cosmetics you're putting on your skin from the lotions to the sunscreen to the makeup that you're wearing, there's 160 to 180 different chemicals that are carcinogenic that are typical in the daily experience of cosmetics. If you have a carotidocyte tight junction barrier, you get less of those into the bloodstream, you end up with less toxicity to the organism. So we're very excited to fortify the natural health of the skin. Excitingly, we've also shown that it actually creates an adaptive effect to the sun. So when you go out to get that vitamin D, instead of doing a stress response, your body goes into an anabolic repair process so these are the exciting things that we recognize that if we were, had the intact skin microbiome, we wouldn't have the sunburns. We wouldn't have the skin cancers and everything else because our repair rate would, would be so high. And it's pretty obvious that humans ultimately developed in the context of the sun. We must yeah. have had the skin intelligence to be able to stay out in the sun all day long before we had houses, before we had sunscreen, yeah. before we wore all of these synthetic fiber clothing to block the sun off of our skin we dwelt without skin cancer before any of that happened. And so the natural innate intelligence of the skin is being reinformed by the skin fortification spray that we've got coming out. So it's very that's exciting cool. just that's being, really being exciting. in this product environment where we're not doing anything to you. We're simply unleashing your potential as the innate intelligent human biology that you are. And that's what gets me excited every time somebody new reaches for a bottle they've never touched because the intelligence they're touching, as soon as they pick that up, is from 55 million years ago. The soil has not recovered since the dinosaurs. We have never had the same level of intelligence back on this planet yet. Maybe after this next extinction, we get there. But right now, when you reach for a bottle of ion, you're reaching for a level of microbial intelligence that humans, only 200,000 years in existence, have never touched before. And wow. so it's been a real honor to be part of a product that is literally tying us back to an ancestral intelligence on this planet that predates humanity by millions of years. And that's humbling. And it's been humbling to see its impact. on. Uh, we've spent a lot of t- time with children with autism and other conditions, watching them start to reintegrate nature into their systems and express their highest self. I can tell you that the autistic kids in our, in our world today are the angels among us. These are the most intelligent, most high consciousness entities I've ever been around. And they get to start to reintegrate biology in them. Uh, they do great things. They do great things. And so uh, I'm excited that the autism epidemic, the pandemic, the death of humanity is preparing us for a moment that we could actually change our behavior and reintegrate into nature to express our highest self. And when we do that, Uh, we will not even recognize the humanity that will come out of that moment.
0: Well, thank you. I'm so grateful to have had your voice on here, your wisdom, your experience, um, and your gift. I mean, your intention is carried in your words. And I just really appreciate the exchange of time uh, for this
1: and to share with the listener um who i'm mark i'm so honored know. to be back on with you i appreciate the space you hold for me and all of your guests that uh, so advanced the human dialogue so thank you for keeping us in dialogue as humanity and thanks for being part of that incredible new technology of podcasting that keeps us uh, having conversation together it's it's the most precious of human rights and if we let this civil liberty of conversation be taken away from us uh, it will be the end of our empire for sure. And so, uh, humanity will collapse when we stop valuing communication, when we stop valuing different viewpoints. And so thank you for inviting me on to hear a different viewpoint and to embrace it. Yeah, of course. And, and
0: curious for the people listening, where do they find you? Where do they, we'll put the links in the show notes and where do they find, uh, the beautiful products that you were speaking of?
1: Yeah, ZachBushMD.com is the website. It'll take you to the whole universe of what's happening in and around me. Um, the, the, the ION products can be found on that page. Um, you can also go to the ION website, which is IONBiome.com. Uh, but uh, at the Zach Bush MD page, you're going to want to go there for all the education stuff. So our global health education seminars that happen every month, they're free. Uh, they've been fully supported by donations only, which I'm really excited about. So there's no paywall between you and, and all of this science information uh, the, the global community has been really generous. So join us monthly. Every month we have you know, between twenty and 30,000 people join us um, for these things. And so join us for the next event. Um, and um, I, I promise we'll continue to push the envelope of, of um, allowing you to feel more hope for who you are. Uh, you showed up right now at the tipping point of all of humanity on purpose. And uh, we're here to empower that purpose with more information and, and a, a science primer on what it means to be alive today.
0: Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.